Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it. Like, um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a great time of the week it is. Always a pleasure to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And on this weekend, we have a very appropriate guest. After the EJ Witten Legends game on Friday night, which was such a success, such a spectacle, delighted to be joined by the man who's the driving force behind it, Ted Witten Jr. Ted, good to see you. Peter, great to be here, mate. Uh, what an occasion on Friday night. It must be something that makes your heart swell with pride every year when you're involved in this. Yeah, certainly. You know, for 24 years the game's been going now, and... Uh, for the opportunity uh, with the EJ Witten Foundation to promote men's health and, and basically save lives, it's, uh, it's really important and uh, we're re- very proud of uh, what we've been able to achieve over the years and this game's a, a key platform for us to be able to push that message out. Something a little bit different this year as well. Yes, the uh, AF- AFLX style or format, whatever you like to call it, was certainly a bit different and uh, I think it was quite exciting. What do you think? I think it worked pretty well. I think that's a good format for it. I'm not sure about AFLX, to be honest. But in this format, I think it's the perfect vehicle, really. And it's a good stadium as well. Yeah, well, it's quick. It's uh, it's exciting. And uh, I think uh, the players enjoyed it because they don't have to run that far on a a smaller (laughs) field. So uh, I think, uh, you know, for the Legends game, I think most people who were there enjoyed it. Uh, you had a couple of competitive beasts as far as the coaches were concerned. Uh, it's supposed to be a bit of fun, but if Derm and the Duck are your coaches, you know that they are going to be competitive. Yeah, you wouldn't expect anything less, <laughs> would you, really? And uh, it's great to see the guys uh, you know, putting up their hand and, and being involved. They're, they've been great supporters of the foundation and the game over the years, and uh, to get them coaching against each other was certainly great to see. What about uh, some of the players who weren't involved in previous years? You had many who were coming back and who loved the experience, but it was good to see some fresh faces coming up as well and some guys that we were really looking forward to seeing in action. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, blokes like uh, Bobby Murphy, uh, Ben Dixon, we had uh, Cameron Ling, Jared Waite, Matthew Boyd, and uh, Ryan Crowley playing for the first time in his tagging role was fantastic. Then uh, the All-Stars, we had... uh, of course, Andrew Jarman played last year, was best on the ground last year, won the EJ Witten medal. But uh, uh, fellas like uh, Matthew Richardson and Jason Ackermanis, good to see them running around again and, and supporting the cause. Who are some of the guys, Ted, over the years who've been really passionate about it from a playing point of view? They're the first ones on the phone to you saying, I want to be involved. What can I do? Well, over the years, we've had some of the guys like uh, Troy Luff, who, uh, who who didn't play this year, of course, and 
Um, we've had uh, Richard Champion, blokes like mm. that, are, are fantastic to uh, to put up their hand and play. But this year we've had to uh, change the format around a little bit and introduce some newly retired players. And I think uh, you know the smaller field enables the, the guys to run around and uh, just go on and off the ground when they can and, and pretty much just put on a, a show for the fans. Let's talk about the whole game as a concept and where the idea first had its genesis. How did it all come about all those years ago? Yeah, well, way back in, uh, I think it was uh, 95, when uh, Dad passed away through prostate cancer, um, we were approached uh, by uh, Baker Smith Management, who uh, who put the game on initially, and uh, we thought it'd be a great way to be able to, uh, you know, for Dad's legacy and to remember his name and uh, to be able to uh, create awareness about men's health and uh, and potentially save lives was a was a great way to do it. So we we took it on board, and uh, it's still going now, 24 years later. Did you believe that it would go as long as it has and be the success that it has? Certainly not. Uh, I thought it might go for two or three years and then. You know, pretty much come to to attend, but uh, it's it's continuously just got better and better, and uh, become pretty much a part of the AFL calendar. And uh, there's so many people enjoy it and watching the the champions of the past uh, get out there and strut their stuff. They've still got the skills; they might be a bit slower, but uh, it's been a great game for um, the foundation. It's also uh, you know fantastic for us to be able to put that message out there and use the game as a, a tool to be able to promote men's health. And it's got its own slot now, which is important because of the buy which exists between round 23 and the first week in the final. So it becomes a standalone game and becomes mm. the focus of the football world in lots of ways. Yeah, well, we'll traditionally we've played it in school holidays in July. Yeah. And, um, you know, in recent years we've had it on that buy weekend. So as a standalone game, it, it's terrific from a, a point of view of watching it on TV. Over the years, what are the memories that you have, the, the great memories, some of the funny things that have happened? And I'm sure there have been many of those. Oh, yeah. Look, you only have to look back and uh, remember Strawny running around, yes. uh, you know, doing his <laughs> blind turns. And, uh, you know, there's been some prodigious uh, kicking going on from, um, you know, Anthony Rocker and uh, things like that. Uh, Hutchie's goal, where he kicked the, the goal of the night one night, uh, Many years ago, where he kicked it from about 50 metres out on the wrong side of his foot. We probably had to mention that, didn't we? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So there's been a number of fantastic highlights, you know. Uh, It's just been a terrific concept over the years to... uh, to be supported by so many players and, and coaches have all uh, put their hand up to to give the foundation a bit of a, a you know a lot of support. Put it that way. I think one of my favourite stories that I heard was uh, one year when Monkey Damien Monkhorst was playing, and I think Craig knew it. The jockey was also playing, <laughs> and they went into the rooms at half time, and I think Monkey said to somebody, "Where's the food? Where's the sandwiches?" And they said, "Well, we haven't got any at the moment." And he looked at Craig Newitt and he said, I might just eat him. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's part of the beauty of it, though, that everyone seems to have such a great time with it. You know, you wouldn't believe the amount of phone calls and emails that I receive from people who uh, who just love it. They love coming every year to be able to just to watch not only the, the stars from their own footy teams, but also the champs of the past, you know. And uh, and that's what it's all about. It's it's not about four points. It's about fun, entertainment, and it's about the promotion and uh, of men's health and prostate cancer awareness. And at the end of the day, it's about uh, having guys who are watching the game understand that uh, at a certain point of their life, they need to start looking after themselves and have a, having a, a general health check and prostate cancer checkup. How long does it take to organise? Is it a 12-month thing? How much time do you spend on it? 
Uh, probably uh, about four or five months. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, in the beginning, you know, we have to uh, organise pretty much uh, venue and uh, in, in association with Channel 7, we uh, we get the players involved and Croc Media also help us now as the event managers of the game. So it's, uh, it's a pretty much a, a process of four or five months and it, it just gets... Uh, Pretty uh, pretty busy towards uh, you know the game as it gets to the uh, state when we're playing it. And it's not the only thing that you've been concentrating your efforts into as well. You've got another big function coming up. We do on the uh, 25th of September, the EJ Witten Grand Final Luncheon, which has been going for, well, I think, uh, 21 years it's been coming up to. So it's, a, it's another big function and fundraiser for the foundation. Uh, we do have a, a great day full of entertainment. We have singers, comedians and... Uh, an element of fundraising on the day, but it's a, a great event attended by nearly a thousand people uh, on an annual basis in a in a really big week, grand final week on the Wednesday, and uh, we look forward to that uh, again this year. If uh, anyone's interested, they can certainly give the the foundation a call on one three hundred Witten, uh, and we'll be happy to book a table or an individual seat. Who's going to be appearing? Uh, this year we have uh, Vince Sorrenti, who's a uh, mm-hmm. comedian. Uh, one of the best comedians in Australia. We've also just uh, got uh, Mick Malthouse, uh, Alastair Clarkson, and uh, who was our other one? Uh, can't think of it at the, at the moment. But, they're not uh, singing, are they? No, no, no. They're, they're, they're our, our footy panel. <laughs> Thank goodness uh, for that. So um, that's a you know a great era of coaches, and uh, I think it should be a, a fantastic event. It's a brilliant week, isn't it? Grand final week with all of the functions that go on, and this is one of the big ones that happens throughout the week. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and this one takes about six months to put together. So it's uh, at the Melbourne Exhibition and Convention Centre. And again, if um, you know people are interested, give us a call because you really will enjoy uh, whether you come along on your own or with a guest or with a, a group of corporate clients. It's a, a fantastic day of entertainment and uh, supporting a great cause. Just a couple of questions, Ted. Um, with regard to raising money, do you have a dollar figure on how much you've raised over the duration of the Legends game in particular? Um, well, in total, the foundation over its 24-year history has raised, you know, around about $13.5 million, That's incredible. Which we're, we're quite proud of because yeah. there's only been uh, two or three of us in our office at, at any one given time. And, and raising money is important, Peter. But, um, you know, creating that awareness and saving lives is, is equally as important. And we get around out into the community very regularly and doing uh, presentations and talks in regards to awareness. And we often take urologists and, and doctors and prostate cancer survivors with us to be able to help us with the presentations. And, you know, they, uh, they go down really well. Uh, the men are really starting to change their attitude towards their own health. And uh, it's just uh, a lot of it through the work of the foundation. We're saving lives, definitely. So you feel as though you can actually see tangible evidence of the fact that things have changed from when you first started this project to now? Most definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, many years ago, men wouldn't talk about or prostate cancer, they wouldn't talk about their general health, but I've, I've seen and can see the changes in their attitudes. Uh, they are now starting to talk more and more about their own health to their friends and their family, and they're starting to ask questions more in particular about prostate cancer and, and what that's all about and how that's tested and checked on an annual basis. And so more and more people talking about it, they get more of an understanding of uh, you know, their own general health. And, and, and the understanding is that uh, prostate cancer uh, is only a blood test initially uh, to check that and uh, become aware of it and then uh, creating a relationship with your doctor and going forward and you look after your general health overall. 
because that's the thing about blokes. Uh, you know, we could sit there and we could talk about the cricket or the footy or whatever, but uh, blokes don't tend to talk about these things very openly, do they? No, they're traditionally reluctant to do it and yeah. until they get something physically wrong with them. Um, but you know, like like when you get your car serviced each year, you don't you don't wait for the the car to blow up. You go and get it serviced because you've got a date where you get it serviced. So. Our attitude is to, to get these guys to understand that it doesn't matter what date it is. It could be Christmas or your birthday or when the Melbourne Cup's on, whatever the date is, just go and have an annual health and, and prostate cancer checkup because it could potentially save your life. How long do you think you'll be able to continue with the game um, in the foreseeable future? I mean, does it have an end date or is it one of those things that is just going to keep on going forever? Well, I only thought it'd go two or three years. And <laughs> it's been going 24, so... Yeah. Um, I guess uh, as long as uh, we get support from the players and, and coaches, who are the ones who put the game on, and the fans in uh, coming along to enjoy it, and the television ratings are, are good, uh, who knows how long it can go? Because it's uh, a great tool, as I said, to be able to uh, promote our cause. And if we can continually save lives out of putting on the Legends game and, and raise a few dollars along the way for research, well, that's what it's all about. And yeah, it could, could go on for years to come. Who knows? Let's hope so. Um, for the rest of the program, we're going to be talking about your famous father, of course. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to be talking about your footy career because when I looked at the facts of your footy career, I think it would surprise a lot of people. You played more than 140 games. Yeah. Now, oh, yeah. now that is something... Do people, when you talk about your career in football, obviously it's intertwined with your dad, mm-hmm. but do people say, really, did you play that many games? Yeah, they're generally surprised. You know, uh, 144 games, um, beginning as a as a 17 year old, was uh, you know something that I was proud of. And unfortunately, when I uh, got to about 25, I, I ran into a, a fella out in a practice match in uh, at Waverley Park when we were playing for the um, uh, in a yeah a practice match for the Bushfire Relief Day, mm. um, and uh, ran into a Collingwood opponent, hurt my knee, and. That was the beginning of uh, three reconstructions on my right knee in, in three years. Never played a game of footy after that particular day. Um, as much as I tried, I broke down two years in a row. And then uh, after that, just had to throw in the towel because uh, you know my, my leg had withered away and uh, I'd lost three years of footy. So that was the end. We'll go back and talk about the start of your career a little bit later. But now that we're on the end of your career, do you sit back and think about what might have been? Would have loved to have continued to play. It was always an ambition to, to be in the 200 club with Dad. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I got reasonably close to it. But um, with injuries, I guess you've got to be able to put up with injuries. And um, it's a fact of life. You know, you, you get out there on the field and if you get injured, you get injured. And it was just a bit sad because I was only young, Pete. I was only 25 when I retired. Yeah. And uh, I think I was on the way to uh, to playing some good footy. My last three years were... You know, uh, I think I played 21, 22, 22 games in the last three years. And, uh, so that's something I was, I was happy with. So I was really just starting to mature as a footballer and uh, unfortunately it came to a sudden halt. What advice did your dad give you when you got to the end of your career and uh, the bitter disappointment that you're obviously feeling at that time? Yeah, he was pretty disappointed as well. And I, and I think that uh, his greatest piece of advice to me was to, you know, obviously get your health right, get your leg right. Um, if you want to stay involved with a football club, that'd be that'd be great, um, which I did. I stayed on as a match committee member and a, a skills coach at the time for another 10 or 12 years, I think it was, um, until he got crook. So um, 
I kind of were stuck on there at the footy club, uh, become a life member, uh, which is something which I'm, I'm proud of. And, uh, and, uh, I got a, a couple of games for Victoria, which was uh, also something that dad was really proud of, um, you know, back in 80, 81. And, uh, yeah, that was just something that uh, was really significant in my memory because of uh, how he felt about it and, you know, uh, what he thought of Victorian football and state of origin football. It was a, a fairly big passion of his. Mm. So to be able to uh, actually get selected and, and have my own big V jumper was something that, uh, yeah, I'm very proud of. I had the pleasure of going on a couple of state trips as a, a young fella covering the games for television networks. And it was always such a joy to deal with your dad. I happened to be in Adelaide the year when Dermot's car broke down on the way to the airport. <laughs> uh, that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, there was always an interesting dynamic between those two, but uh, Dermot just loved your dad. He adored him. Yeah, yeah, he's great, Dermot. And uh, I, I do remember the story and uh, the fact that dad blew up uh, in front of the, the TV cameras mm. and, uh, and, and Dermot didn't understand what he was just putting on a show. For the cameras, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, very funny story. Uh, it was uh, it was great, and I think uh, the stories that I've heard about Dad on state trips, you know, uh, obviously he was a, he was a leader, and he he loved having the guys around him and and making sure that they enjoyed themselves and they enjoyed playing for Victoria. Yeah, there was a bit of theatre about that because I actually remember that interview you were talking about when mm. uh, Ted blew up uh, in front of the cameras, yep. and about five seconds before we actually started the interview, the one that I did with him, he said. So what do you want me to do? <laughs> and then Dermot said later, Ted, you can't berate me like that in front of the cameras. He said, mate, it's all show business. <laughs> uh, some great stories and some more still to come. Ted, we'll take a break and uh, we'll be back to talk about the start of your career in footy and, of course, the influence your dad had on the game. And that day, that year at the Western Bulldogs just a few years ago when it all was worthwhile. Ted Whitten Jr. is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll have more with Ted coming up after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. What a pleasure it is to have Ted Whitten Jr. as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We talked about the end of your career, Ted. Let's go back to the start of your career, obviously with a famous name. When you carry a name that famous at a football club like Footscray, as it was then, is it a burden? Um, look, it, it can be. I can understand how some uh, father-sons wouldn't be able to um, cope with you know, the burden. Um, in my particular case, I, I, I was going around the footy club for, for many years and uh, as an only child, I, I got used to uh, everybody talking about me and talking about me playing footy and are you ever going to be as good as your father? And, you know, I had those questions coming at me for a long time before I even started playing with the Bulldogs. So when I actually started, uh, you know, competitive football as a young fella, I was only eight. I was playing in the under-14s and uh, I think it took me three or four years to get a kick. Um, but I got a few whacks. I know that that's for sure just because of my name. And, uh, and that kind of toughened me up a little bit, uh, made me more determined to just, uh, you know, go and get a kick. And um, eventually, uh, it, when I got to my right age group, when I was, you know, under, under 12, under 14, uh, at the right age, I, I started to go okay. And um, it was eventually one of those things where, you know, being the son of EJ didn't really bother me um, because I knew that I was never going to be as good as him. 
Um, but all I ever had to do was try my best. And uh, that was the advice that he gave me. And he said, once you get out there, mate, he said, it'll, uh, it'll just come naturally to you. You know, the, the higher grade you, you play, the more you'll appreciate and understand that uh, it's not as bad as you thought. So um, I didn't worry about it at all. Everyone who uh, was talking about it uh, was talking to themselves about it because uh, it didn't concern me at all that I was being compared to him. Entirely different footballers we were. Uh, I was a bit smaller and played in different positions to, to what Dad did. And uh, so at the end of the day, it didn't worry me at all. All I had to do out there is go out, please the coach and, and make sure that I, I gave it my 100%. Who was your first coach when you got there? Uh, Bob Rose yeah, uh, was my first coach. Great man uh, in football. Yeah, fantastic bloke, Bob. And uh, he was there for uh, two or three years with us. And then Billy Goggin took over from mm. Geelong. And then Billy was there for a while before I think Royce Hart come in. And uh, that's when I was, I was playing my, my best footy under Royce. But Royce, unfortunately, got the bullet. Uh, and then Bluey Hampshire replaced Royce. And, uh, and then eventually Michael Malthouse come in. But I never got the chance to play under Mick because uh, that's when I did my knee in the pre-season that uh, he was appointed. So um, sadly, uh, there was another couple of guys. Don McKenzie coached at one stage as a fill-in and I think Frank Good as well. Johnny Burt was also a, a great coach mm-hmm. of mine in the in the reserves at the Bulldogs. So yeah, uh, appreciated all their support and uh, it was great to be able to be involved with those types of coaches and ex-players. Did you find your feet early, Ted, in the VFL or did it take a little while? Well, as a, as a 17-year-old, like I, I started with people like Jeff Jennings, Jeff Geeshan, Kelvin Templeton, mm. um, Ian Morrison, Terry Wheeler. They were all with me in, in that first year in 1974. Um, I think it took me uh, about five games to, to get into the senior side and eventually played nine or ten that particular year. And then it just grew from there, you know, it went from uh, nine or 10 games to 12 to 14. And so you, you start to adapt, you start to get used to the pace of the game. And uh, obviously you, you, you train harder and, um, and get involved, understand how the, your players are playing with you, your teammates. And so, yeah, it, it, it didn't take that long, but it was great to be able to be involved in it. The teams obviously had success in recent years. Were you having much success in those days? Uh, the year I arrived, we, I think we played in a prelim final. Um, but then we were up and down after that. We uh, we lost a lot of players because the club wasn't going that well financially, and we had to uh, sell off a few of our stars, you know, to uh, to survive basically. So it was uh, it was an up and down period of time. Um, I don't remember playing in one final myself for the Bulldogs, mm-hmm. sadly, because uh, we're always you know around the the middle of the pack and uh, towards the bottom. But um, it was certainly great to be involved, mate. And as it turns out, just when you did your knee. That was a time where there was the resurgence, that famous preliminary final out at Waverley was just after that as well. So yeah. it was, that was a good time for the football club, but unfortunately you weren't around to see it. No, sadly, sadly. But, uh, I mean, that's footy, isn't it? You've got to be prepared for the highs and lows of it. And, um, you know, if I, if I had been around, well, who knows? Um, I would have uh, possibly got into the team and, uh, and had a bit of fun, but it wasn't to be. What position did you play, Ted? I preferred centre. Mm. Um, on ball, I could play... Uh, you know, uh, rover, ruck, rover, obviously forward, forward line, half forward flank, forward pocket. Uh, a bit of a, a goal kicker. I kicked a, a, a few goals uh, over my career. I think about 130 goals. Um, so I did enjoy kicking a goal, but uh, I did prefer playing in the midfield, actually. Yeah, it was 144 games, 133 goals. So mm. 
not many players these days can boast, especially midfielders, can boast an average of nearly a goal a game. Yeah, as I said, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed kicking the ball um, through the sticks, but also enjoyed kicking the ball to people like Kelvin Templeton, who was a great full forward. Mm. And uh, him and I had a great relationship. And uh, so whether it was right or left foot, uh, every time I looked up, he was, you know, leading. And so put it out in front and, and uh, he'd get it nine times out of ten. So it was good. But, um, yeah, look, I think uh, people like Jeff Geeshan and uh, Jeff Jennings are also great players and, you know, uh, as I said, Kelvin Temple, Brownlow medalist in the finish, and we all started the same year. What about the Western Oval, the Witten Oval, as it is mm. now? Must be very proud for you. But the Western Oval, it was a fortress. I spent many years as a kid going to games out there, and there was that that narrow terrace that ran alongside yeah. <laughs> uh, the other side of the ground, the outer side of the ground to the members. It, it was a bit of a fortress, even though the team mightn't have been, you know, the greatest winning team. At yeah. that time, but it was tough to go out there. Oh, I think so. I, I don't think there's many teams that uh, would enjoy going out there. And I, for one, didn't enjoy playing there myself. You know, I'd rather play in the wet yeah. than, than the wind. But uh, it was tough because we knew how to play the ground. It was a skinny, long ground. Mm. And we knew how to defend it well. And um, often it was all about winning the toss, which way you, you kicked. And uh, if the wind was blowing a particular way... Well, we're in trouble if the wind was blowing the other way because we weren't used to it blowing down the Barclay Street in. Mm. It was always towards the Geelong Road in. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting times and, uh, you know, we really knew how to play the ground. Uh, the other thing that they do see plenty of is cash. What was your biggest contract when you were playing? Uh, my biggest was uh, $20,000 yeah. uh, when, I, when I finished in about 83, 84. That probably would have been pretty good coin in those days. I was very happy with it. Yeah. But, uh, I certainly wasn't the highest paid player, but uh, yeah, twenty grand was uh, pretty good. But once they ripped a bit of tax out of it, you didn't get much left. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that used to happen was that footy was a pretty social game in those days. Um, did you enjoy the social side of it? Because I think there were a few teams. Carlton probably led the march in that era with the off-field activities. They were pretty good at that with some of the blokes that were at the Blues. Uh, how about your boys? Did they enjoy life off the field as well? Yeah, pretty much. You know, I mean that that's what happened back in those days. Uh, Win, lose, or draw, you'd you'd all go out together with your wives or girlfriends, and sometimes with the opposition players. Mm. Uh, it was always something that was kind of planned on the day, and uh, we'd always end up going out for dinner with each other, and uh, sometimes back to someone's house to finish off the night. But we'd be always back at training the next morning. Uh, we always had Sunday morning training to to run a bit out, and uh, it was always something that we enjoyed, you know. And um, as I said, win, lose, or draw, we'd always have. Uh, a bit of a party on somewhere and uh, go and have something to eat. The funny thing about those Sunday morning sessions was that uh, sometimes there was a little continuation of what had gone on on the Saturday night sometimes uh, after the Sunday yeah. sessions. What do they call them? Pleasant, oh, pleasant Sunday mornings. Yeah, the trainer's, uh, the trainer's barrel was pretty popular. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you do have to support the trainers. So, uh, yeah, they used to have a, a few drinks on a Sunday and it was always good to have a few party pies and something to eat and a couple mm. of beers and then head off home. Before the days of dietitians, eh, mate? Yeah, well, in my day, uh, gee, I, I used to eat steak and eggs before a game. And yeah. It was probably the worst thing I could eat. But um, and all the all the pasta dishes come in, and all the nutritionists, and gee whiz, things have changed a lot, Pete. Yeah, they have. Um, one thing that goes on because of the game that we were talking about, the EJ Witten game, that camaraderie you were talking about between players of different teams when they used to associate with each other. I think that's one thing that is great about what we see about your game now, the, the EJ Witten game. It, it gives the boys the opportunity, and girls, mm. uh, to go back in time and to socialise with people that 
have been trying to belt the hell out of him for the last hour or so. Yeah, well, as you know, in the old days, you, you always used to have a drink with your opposition yeah. players. Um, I remember myself, I, I played on a bloke called Brian Peake one day down at Toulon. Pasties. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I actually had a good game and um, it was great to, you know, I was only young, about 17, and uh, great to be able to uh, just have a, a lemon squash as I did those days. Mm. Um, but to be able to talk to your opposition players and, you know, uh, discuss the game and, you know, just you learn so much from it. And it was something that was cut out um, a number of years ago. There's no more um, after match for, you know, teams and players and wives and girlfriends anymore. So... Yeah, the the EJ Legends game is something that we can we can do that with now. The players from you know both opposing teams can get in after the game and have a drink together and uh, enjoy what was a fantastic game. All right, now might be the appropriate time, seeing we're talking about celebrating after the game. Over the years, give us your three, two, and one votes, the Brownlow votes for the best celebrators from the EJ Witten game. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. Eh? Well, I mentioned uh, Troy Luff. Yes, he was uh, always a, a, a guy who in, enjoyed himself uh, prior to the game um, and after the game. Um, who else? Uh, I can think of uh, a couple of blokes, but uh, I don't know if I should mention their names. Dougie Hawkins was one. Yeah, who, don't uh, mention Dougie's name. Don't mention Dougie. Well, no. Dougie'd start the week before and finish a week later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and uh, and more recently, uh, I think oh, Simon Atkins. Mm. Yes, Simon Atkins played uh, half a dozen games and uh, he was a, another bulldog, but he uh, he certainly enjoyed himself. So those three were, stand out to me. just occurred to me that some of the boys from Friday night might be in a car somewhere listening to this as the celebrations continue. So <laughs> uh, just about 36 hours down the track, boys. Uh, hope you enjoyed the celebrations <laughs> afterwards. Ted, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about your dad, the influence that he's had over football in general, that famous moment at the MCG when you were in the car with him and all the great moments that he gave us in footy. Ted Whitten Jr. is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. What a pleasure it is to have Ted Whitten Jr. as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Uh, Ted, you've probably gathered uh, the fact that this show jumps around a bit. We go from the end to the beginning, <laughs> and now we're going to go back even further. As a kid growing up in Braybrook with this larger-than-life father, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was great. It was uh, absolutely fantastic. I was so proud of Dad, and um, you know, he was he was playing um, uh, when I was a young fellow. I, was, I used to go along. I was the mascot, and. Uh, you know, that was from very early days when I could just walk and pretty much I used to lead the team out. And I was really proud of him and his performances and, you know, uh, just walking down the street, uh, you know, having him recognised by so many people. And, you know, for me, he was my dad and uh, that made me really proud. So it was just a joy growing up and we used to do everything together, go everywhere. You know, I used to, as I said, go to footy, the footy club and training. And so I got to know all the players, but when he was working at Channel 7 and his radio later in his career, it was it was just terrific to be with him because so many people enjoyed his company. Mm. He was one of those infectious type of blokes that, uh, you know, he, he liked to uh, be in the middle and introduce everyone around and uh, whether, you know, they'd 
he had the ability to mix with different types of people and um, and make them feel special, and um, it was always good to be in his company. What's your earliest memory of seeing your dad play? Can you remember one particular game that seems to be the first one in your mind? Yeah, I, I think I, it would have been when I was about eight or nine. I, I really started to take notice of him and, and, and watch him. Watch him how he, he went about his footy because being the uh, the captain coach at the time and um, watching his ability to look after his players and protect them and uh, and then he'd do the things that uh, be match-winning in terms of the the game, you know, whether it be a prodigious torpedo punt from 50, 80 metres out uh, with a wet ball or the flick pass, uh, all those little things. That, uh, and also his, uh, his aggressive nature in uh, in bumping blokes. Uh, I started to take notice of all that when I was about eight or nine. Mm. Uh, yes, that aggressive nature is an interesting observation because there are those little clips that we always see uh, that Channel 7 has showed over the years of your dad mm. just giving a little clip behind the ear or maybe rubbing mud in someone's yeah. face. <laughs> that was Dick Clay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he used to cop a bit too. Like mm. uh, he, he didn't shirk an issue, but he um, he used to cop a bit too as one of the the key players of the of the club. So um, you know, you give a bit, you take a bit, and uh, and get on with it. But um, from about eight or nine, I started to really watch the way he used to play and uh, uh, try and learn a little a bit from the way he used to protect himself. So it was interesting to be able to take that all in, and I think I did learn from it. Uh, the captain coach role you mentioned that it seems incredible to think in this day and age when you've got a dozen coaches of different yeah. descriptions, that anybody could fill that role. It was just all-consuming, I guess, for him. Yeah, and he, he took over as a young 23-year-old yeah. from, from Charlie Sutton. Uh, so, um, you know, with no experience of coaching at all, uh, 23 years of age, captain coach of a league football club, it was amazing. But um, it used to happen back in those days. Uh, there's been many examples of, of captain coaches but he took it on, and uh, I think he developed himself as a as a leader by by doing that. And um, he used to lead by example. Um, but in some regard, he probably didn't get the best out of himself because he had to, you know, put himself in a position where he'd have to fill a hole at centre half back if they had someone go off injured. Or that's why he, uh, he ended up playing in a lot of different positions because he was filling holes all the time. Mm. So. Um, to be able to kind of get through with the career he had and uh, and be the player that he was uh, was probably a lot to do with uh, him, him filling those different gaps and uh, in, and holes where players uh, he had to represent at other ends and other positions on the field. We've touched on his magnificent career at the Bulldogs and uh, also his involvement in state footy. When did you find out that he wasn't well? So um, we were coming home one night after a, a function out at uh, AFL Park at Waverley there and... We'd stopped uh, four or five times on the way home for, for Dad to go to the toilet. And uh, when we stopped again on the banks of the Yarra at uh, Leonda, I said to him, hey, uh, you're going to the loo a fair bit, mate. Uh, is everything okay? And he said, well, not really. He said, uh, I've been busting to go again. And he said, I, I can't actually pee because it's, uh, it's very painful and it's coming out like a drip. And I said, uh, well, how long's this been going on? And he said, oh, two or three years. I said, well, you haven't done anything about it? He said, no. I said, well, why? He said, well, I've just been busy. I just thought I'd get it fixed up when I had the time. And so he's allowed it to get worse and, and worse and, and more painful and done nothing about it until this particular night when if I wasn't there, he probably still wouldn't have done anything about it. Mm. But um, I said, well, we better go to the doctor tomorrow and have it checked out, not thinking that 
anything was too bad. It just he had an issue with his waterworks, and we had to get it fixed. Mm. He probably thought the same. But um, when we visited the doctor who referred us to a urologist, and after some tests and checkups, we went back the next day, and uh, we were given the news that he, he had aggressive prostate cancer that it had escaped his prostate gland, got into his bones. And it was so far advanced that uh, pretty much he had a, a three or four year window uh, left to live. So that hit us pretty hard, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, it was one of those um, issues where he didn't even know what to say. He didn't know what to uh, to do. And I think it took him a fair while to, for it to all settle in. And um, obviously we, we, we tried very hard. He he tried very hard with treatments and all that to, uh, to get it uh, fixed. But... Uh, once the, the cancer's out of the prostate gland into the bones, it's, it's very difficult to fix. So, uh, unfortunately, he, he went through three or four years of, uh, you know, uh, uh, difficult times with uh, treatments and um, he was getting radiation and chemotherapy and, um, you know, eventually had a stroke, lost the sight in his, uh, in his eyes. And, um, yeah, it was all downhill and a terrible way for him to, you know, to finish up the rest of his life. And you became his eyes on that famous day at the MCG. What are your memories of that day? Oh, it, was, it was an unbelievable day. It was a day that was lucky to happen. The night before, he wasn't uh, well at all. And um, it wasn't until the next morning that we decided that, uh, well, he decided he, he wanted to do it. So we had to make some phone calls and say, well, no, we're going to be doing it. So. We uh, eventually went uh, to the game and he put on the big V, went and had his hair cut, put the tie on and out, out in the very cold, freezing day, you know, state of origin, Victoria versus South Australia with Neil Curley there strutting around. It was a very emotional day. Mm. Um, Danny Frawley was heavily involved, uh, giving Dad an introduction to all the players in the, in the dressing rooms because he, he could hardly see it all. And uh, I had my children there with, with us on the day. And once we went on out onto the ground and they started to play the, the song Hero by Mariah Carey, mm. um, the ground just erupted in uh, applause. And for me, holding him up and, and telling him where we were positioned on the ground on the day, um, letting him know when we went past the, uh, the commentary boxes so we could give a big stick it up him mm. as he went past. But it was such an emotional day because there was so many people who were openly showing their emotions. Mm. Uh, crying and showing their respect uh, for for Mr. Football for the very last time. Yeah, and after you'd lost him, I suppose, then comes the celebration of life, as Mm. it is called these days. And it was just an incredible outpouring of um, emotion from people who barely knew him, uh, from people who knew him very well, to his family who'd been with him in every battle that he'd had. It was an extraordinary recognition of a great life. Yeah, it, it's something I'll, I'll never forget, the, the amount of people who, um, who uh, were involved in f- from at the funeral. Uh, when we come out of the funeral, uh, out of the church, you know, we, we went back down towards uh, the Western Oval at the time and there were people and uh, children lining the streets all the way from the church in the city right down to the footy ground and then right down to the crematorium in Altona. People come out of their homes and their businesses and their schools to be able to show their respect uh, as he went past. And uh, it was one of the most amazing days uh, of my life. And to remember that is, uh, is gives me a very happy feeling because it was uh, 
something that I, I really think was great for people to show their respect uh, for him on uh, on the day of day of his funeral. Yeah. We're just about out of time, Ted. We'll take our final break and then I want to ask you about 2016 because anyone who is red, white and blue remembers what happened in that September and the incredible events. So we'll get your final thoughts on that when we come back on the other side of the break. Ted Whitten Jr. is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with Ted Whitten Jr. on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As I was throwing to the break and I mentioned 2016, there was a smile came over yes, your face. I uh, obviously missed the, the 54 premiership, and uh, but I was at the 1961 grand final where Dad was captain coach and we played Hawthorne. Mm. And we're in front at halftime, but we got overrun. When we made it, it was a huge celebration, and uh, I knew we were in there with a, a good chance, but we didn't actually uh, put our nose in front until about the 20-minute mark of that, uh, that game. So it was, uh, it was great because we, we, when we did hit the front, we kicked away by you know, two or three goals, and then we come to the point and the realisation that we were going to win the grand final. Mm. We were going to be premiers. And that was amazing because the game was so close, everybody was right on the edge of their seats, but after we kicked away and there was like five minutes left, we were three goals up, we thought we were going to win the grand final. Incredible. And Fantastic. it would have, would have been a euphoric time for you as a, a bulldog man through and through because of the legacy. But I, I dare say a lot of people would have come to you and mentioned your dad in the days after that and saying your dad would have been proud, oh, yeah. your dad would have been over the moon. Yeah. There, what would he think? Yeah, there was a great reminder of his time at the club that came yeah. in the hours following that grand final win. Most definitely, and you know, it's uh, it is sad that he he wasn't there to watch it. He wasn't there to to see it happen. Um, I never ever thought I'd see a, a Bulldogs uh, uh, grand final victory. You know, uh, you just never know, do you? And um, the way we played that year was okay, and we finished seventh. But um, the football we played in that last month was unbelievable. Mm. You know, and the momentum and the support by all of uh, the football world. I guess we we had the support of the entire nation when we went into that grand final. So. Uh, it was unbelievable, but anyway, look, who who knows what's going to happen this year? Yeah, um, Bulldogs um, may or may not go further down the track, but uh, who knows? Well, the fairy tale came true the year after with Richmond, so we've seen that fairy tales are possible in football. As you say, who knows? Um, congratulations on your involvement with the game on Friday night and everything that you've done uh, over more than two decades now with the EJ Whitten Foundation. Best of luck for the lunch. Last question. Mm-hmm. Your dad is such a, a famous figure amongst the football club, but he's just, to you, he's your dad. Yeah. What was the best piece of advice, the most important piece of advice that he ever gave you? Yeah, uh, very quickly. He, uh, when I made the list uh, at the Bulldogs as a 17-year-old for the very first time, uh, we all went down there. We had our photographs taken. I had my jumper presented by uh, John Schultz and Bob Rose. And um, a terrific night, photographs, friends, family, you know, all the new players and everyone got their jumpers as they still do. Then on the way home, he, uh, he was driving. I was in the back seat because I was only 17 and he, he said, uh, uh, very good, very good. He said, I'll, uh, I want to see you when we get home. And uh, so I said, okay, no worries. And 
So I'm, we're driving along and I'm thinking, what does he want to see me about? What does he, what does he want to tell me? And I'm thinking, maybe he wants me to, to eat the right foods, to train hard, make sure I listen to my coach, do all the, all the things that I could possibly do to make sure I have a long and distinguished football career now that I've made the, the list for the very first time. It's got to be something like that, surely. So we get home, get out of the car. He said, sit down there. So I, I went and sat down and back he comes. He said, now stand up, look me in the eye. So I looked at him in the eye and he said, now I'm going to tell you this once. I'm thinking to myself, here it comes, here it comes. He said, your mother and I are very proud of you. You've made the list of the senior AFL football team for the first time. Well done. He said, but don't you ever, ever miss a footy trip. So, that was his advice to me as a 17-year-old from Mr. Football. He'd be proud. He'd definitely be proud in all sorts of ways. Ted, it's been a pleasure to have you along. Thanks, Peter. Ted Whitten Jr. joining me on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, a couple of great lives that we've celebrated in the past hour. We'll do it again, same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.